Good morning, KCC, Lake Country, and anyone else around the world that's joining us. This is Larry and Francine. Say hi, Francine. Hi, I'm Francine. <laughs> I'm Larry's wife. Uh huh. And um, and I'm sometimes be referred to as Mrs. Labelle, but not here in Kenya. So here in Kenya, let us let me give you a bit of a breakdown of what we do. Uh, primarily, uh, we rescue children and find good safe homes for them where we support them in the homes. Francine does. Um, I run a medical clinic free of charge, uh, some outreaches in North Burkhut and Turkana, and then I also work in the women's prison as a trauma art worker. Therapist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also repair uh, boreholes in town and out in the more, more remote areas. and. Uh, we also have a, a number of church plants. And so we just uh, like to express our thanks to KCC and all our supporters around the world for helping us with our ministry here. It's been 10 years now that we've been uh, living in Kenya. And, a little and, over 10 years. Yeah, and almost 13 years that we've been, uh, our, our focus has been Kenya. Yeah. And so um, KCC, uh, we've been doing a series on sonship, and I've been asked to share today. So I'm going to let you share about uh, sonship and uh, the love of God in their lives and with the orphans, specifically with the orphans, because it's very much a topic right now. And I just want to say God bless you guys. Thank you so much for your support, for your constant love and um, always being there uh, when we need you. Mm -hmm. And thank you not forgiving about us being so far away and as I said, very supportive. So my hubby is going to share the word of God by the name of Jesus, amen. Yeah. Isn't she beautiful? I love that girl. So, where do I start? Uh, how about the title of the message today? I've titled it Adoption. You're welcome. <laughs> Adoption in the, in the Sonship. Hallelujah. So in my studies, because um, I had to study some of this, and so I'll be doing more teaching than preaching today. Uh, it's quite a deep subject. But what I found that it, it wasn't, it's, it's difficult, not in, if not impossible, to uh, separate adoption from the act of sonship. And so I'm going to today try to increase your understanding of sonship, both uh, practically and spiritually. All right. So let's open in prayer. Holy Spirit, I just uh, give you thanks for what you've been teaching me. And I would just like to pass it on to you, uh, that you'd use me as your instrument to convey um, what it means to be a, a son of the Almighty. And so, Lord, uh, you are the uh, spirit of truth and the spirit of adoption. So who better to convey uh, what it means to be adopted and to experience the fullness of Christ? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Barnes Research Group, they tell us that um, there's double the chance if you're a Christian family that you will adopt. And so how many of you out there uh, are adopted? And let me ask... Uh, how many of you out there have adopted? Now, for those that have adopted, you know the um, difficult, uh, long 
and costly process of adoption. And uh, I'm talking to a friend of mine about adoption the other day, and she said something kind of humorous. And let me read what she said to me. She said, uh, there were times when the adoption process that they were so exhausting and painful and made me want to scream. But then, so did childbirth. Now, the truth is that God suffered for a long time. He paid the price and paid the cost to enable us to be adopted into his family. Both Father God and Jesus, they, they paid the ultimate price, both emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And uh, as I was reading the Word, I could see that it was Father God that started the adoption process a long, long time ago. How long, you ask? Long time. Check this out. The Bible says He started this process before He created the world. Yes. So, if you turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4, we read that He says, Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ, to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, to be without fault in his eyes. So that's like when we come to prayer, we stand before our Father. He looks at us with just love. He sees us, he sees his child as, as perfect, without flaw, ideal, the, the perfect child. And sometimes it's hard to wrap our head about that, but we need to realize that's how much what he sees he sees us he sees us Jesus in us and he sees us in Jesus if we go on to verse 5 it says he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ this is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure so God didn't adopt us in, in while we were still sinners begrudgingly it wasn't a plan B he'd already planned it and it brought him great pleasure so we see that God started the process before the foundation of the world. And then we see later, if we turn to Galatians 4, 4, 5, it says, When the time, the right time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now we jump forward to the present. Not to be silly, but let me ask you a question. Why don't orphans play baseball? Because they don't know where home is. And that's us. That's who we were. We were looking for a place to belong. We were looking for acceptance. We were living in a life where self or culturally made identities. We were looking to belong. We were looking for a home. Much like Abraham and his family long for a new country, a heavenly country. But the truth is that uh, ultimate satisfaction will never be realized in this life unless it's anchored in God and His promises of a new home for us. Now, there's not a, a lot spoken about adoption in the Old Testament, but there is a, one particular psalm that seems to set a pattern for adoption. So if you turn in the book of Psalms, 106 and verse 7. It says, Therefore God went and took a son from Egypt. Now, what we're referring to here 
is when God decided to rescue the Hebrews from their slavery in Egypt and lead them out through the Red Sea. Therefore, God went and took a son from Egypt who was both enslaved and rebellious. So we see they were slaves and they were rebellious. They were rebellious to God. And therefore, the pattern set. We see that adoption it doesn't come from these safe, clean, uh, auspicious situations. We often think that, oh, when God adopted me, he must have looked down and seen this cute little baby um, wrapped in soft, fuzzy blankets. Uh, he did not. Truth is, we were vile, sin-seeking, children of the devil who did not please God and were worthy of his wrath. Let me give you an illustration. So this, uh, this young couple decide to adopt a child and the process has gone through and now they're in an adoption agency waiting in the room to meet their son. They're sitting on a bench, holding hands, giggling with anticipation. And the uh, adoption agent, she walks in with a drug-addicted, 16-year-old rebellious delinquent who's already developed a criminal mind. He's got hate in big letters tattooed on his forehead. And when he blinks, he's got unspeakable four-letter words tattooed right on his eyelids. Now, not many families want to rush into that adoption, but God did. He saw us in that state and he says, I'll take that child. Now, um, I just want you to realize that we were not the ideal little cuddly baby when God adopted us. We see in the Bible that God has the highest priority for orphans and widows. And uh, it's, it's throughout the New Testament. But particularly if we look in the book of James, um, James is explaining God's view of real religion. This is what it's supposed to look like. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Sounds nice, but it just sort of sounds like, ah, we're just going to drop in. And so they've used a, a, an improper word there in that translation, because visit to us means to, to pay a, a visit to a friend um, or a situation out, out of friendship or, or need. Uh, but it's just a, a short period of time. So they don't use a very good word at translation there because in the Greek, the word is ergon, and it doesn't mean anything like the word visit. Ergon actually means, uh, means good works. And we find an example of that in Ephesians 2.10. Let me read. For we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. Word ergon, created for ergon good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, we see beforehand. So we see that even before the world was created, he already knew us. He already had plans for us. The plans were to adopt us, but he also had plans for us to represent him, to be his hands and feet, to be his spokesperson, to be his um, ambassador, if you may. And so um, I encourage you when, you, when you leave here today, that you look for these opportunities and say, God, open my eyes to these good works that you've planned beforehand for that I can, for I can participate in them. Because when we do respond to God's prompting to help somebody or a situation, it brings us, brings us joy. 
And, and it also brings happiness and joy to the person or the situation or whatever it is. But ultimately, it'll always bring glory to God. And that's what it's all about. We see that a better rendition of this would be, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to constantly work alongside and for orphans and windows, windows, widows in their affliction despite any cost. See, God is the most active person when it comes to adoption. In fact, if he had his way, we would all be adopted into his family. Now, it's pretty hard to teach on sonship without touching down on the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And I'm sure you've, you've already heard some explanations of it. You know the story. One of the sons decides, hey, heck with this. He says, Dad, give me my inheritance. He goes, parties hard, hits bottom. And while he's at the bottom, he comes to his senses and says, oh, maybe I can go home and maybe, just maybe, my father can give me a job as a servant, and at least I'll eat. He goes home, the father embraces him fully, but he doesn't embrace him as a servant, but rather as a son. And so, it, it, although the boy was willing to go home and be a servant, and that may seem like an act of humility, it really it wasn't. It was an act of disgrace and disrespect and an insult to the father. You see, the son... He was thinking like a servant and not a son. He was hoping to work his way back and he was going to settle for a mere portion of his father's love and forgiveness. Even many of us as Christians, we tend to live and act like the prodigal son, believing that we need to work and earn God's forgiveness and his love. We see in the story that even the older son did not understand sonship. His view was, hey, I stayed behind, I worked hard, I earned it. He, he didn't realize that actually, no, his inheritance was a gift from his father, the fruit of his father's hard work. Scripture tells us of that father who represents in this story, our father above, that he embraced his son fully, totally, and unconditionally. And that all he wanted to do was lavish love on and over his son. In the story, we also see Jesus underlying the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is sometimes the last thing that dawns on us. We tend to fix our eyes on ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt. And it seems possible that the Father would forgive us. And so, so many Christians, we go through life with the, um, with the prodigal's suspicion, if I may. We, we concentrate on our sin and failure, and all our thoughts are introspective. And perhaps that's why in the, the, Greek, in the Greek writing in um, 1 John, uh, chapter 3, 1, John's statement about the Father's love begins like this. Behold, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. Now, we don't use the word behold anymore, but we have an idea what it means. But if you don't, it, it literally means, look, look at this. Look, this is a, a clearly observable, objectable, uh, objective fact. It's like, do not miss this. 
So it's like he's saying, don't miss the manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. He's saying, that's a lot of love being poured out. That it takes a lot of love for God to want us to be his children, and that we can have that title. But uh, like the prodigal, sometimes we lack the ability to believe that salvation is completely by grace. And although we have the status of sons, we have the mindset of a servant. The Father's love is unconditional. And we need to come to grips with the fact that our past sins, our accidental sins, even our deliberate sins, have all been forgiven. Their history. God in His ability has chosen to forget, hit the delete button, no longer does He recall. When we repent, it is gone. And yet, some of us, when we come to God, we're like, Oh, Papa, how can I ask again? I mean, how many times lately have I asked you to forgive me for this sin? And Just yesterday, you forgave me for this sin, and here am I again. Ah, oh, just yesterday. And God's answer, His reply is, I did. You see, He's decided and chose to forget about it. Amen? And so the psalmist assures us, I'm not sure which psalm it is. I know what it says. You'll have to look it up what it is. He says that the Father has decided to remove our sins so far from us as far as the east is from the west. Totally gone. In Romans 5.8, it tells more about just how much God loved us. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still that delinquent, hating, disobedient, rebellious child, he died for us. We go back to the prodigal son for a second. Now, as bad as it was that he took his inheritance and, and then squandered it, that's not the, the height of, the, um, of his sin, if you may. When he was asking his dad for his inheritance, in those days it was like saying, Dad, oops, Dad, I wish you were dead. And that's uh, what the world wishes today. Nietzsche and Time Magazine, they both proclaimed, God is dead. And they do this in hopes to paving a, a way where they can follow their evil inclinations. But we see that both fathers felt the pain of seeing children they created wishing them dead. Nevertheless, both fathers have expressed unconditional love. Now, as a father figure over here, two or three dozen children, um, I wish, sadly, I can't say that I work in unconditional love. There's been times where we've had to draw a line in the sand and we say, son or daughter, you've crossed this line and your disobedience and your disregard and your continual behavior, um, you can no longer be under our covering. Fortunately, that was when we had an orphanage. But now that we put our children into uh, loving family homes, the situation has changed. We haven't had to do that. Because these children have gone now from being fostered to being adopted and received in the family.
uh, in some cases, our older boys went into a young family and they happen to be the oldest child in the family. And the fathers have said, son, I want you to know that you are now the firstborn. So we see an orphan has gone from little or few rights to the position of sonship and firstborn. And, and like in the Bible here in Kenya, the title or the position of firstborn carries a, a lot of not only responsibility, but a lot of privileges and a lot of um, different rights. Amen. So uh, it's wonderful that our kids have gone from being orphans to adopted firstborns. And uh, scripture tells us that we too have been given all the advantages and privileges of being adopted. Now, uh, in this gender cor correct culture, um, some people may have a problem with son, son, sonship, sonship, son. Now, I don't have time, and it's been explained before, but if you turn in your Bible to Ephesians 3, 28, it'll explain it fully there, and it'll help you understand, and I encourage you to do that. Uh, now, let, let me tell you a little bit about my adoption. I, I uh, have some similar situation as Jesus. You see, I had a biological mom, and her husband adopted me. Because you see, when my mom was pregnant with me and raising a nine-year-old daughter, my dad left. And later, my mom married a, another man who had two children. And I was adopted when I was three years old. Now, now in my family sitting, I can remember my mom proudly saying, I have four children, two of which are adopted, but I forget which two. And that, as nice as it sounded, wasn't very accurate. In fact, she loved my sister and I more than adopted children. And my wonderful father, he was a great dad, he embraced and loved his kids more than me and my sister. Now, on the other hand, uh, I know a couple over here, and uh, I was asking my friend, uh, I'm, I'm teaching an adoption, you've adopted a girl, tell me, do you, do you love them the same? And uh, he's like, yes, uh, yes, I do, totally, no difference. And uh, in fact, if there's, a, if there's only difference is, I feel like uh, I'm more, I need to apply more responsibility. I'm, I'm more responsible to Chloe, the girl that I adopted. And so um, I know that, of course, there's no singular technique how parents love their adopted children. And I know many parents that are able to love their children equally. Um, I'm just telling you how adoption played out in my life. And uh, a little follow-up, I did get to meet my bio dad. Turned out to be a great guy when I was in my early 30s. We spent time, we traveled, we built a good relationship. And then uh, he took his life. Um, he didn't, didn't take his life because he met me. Ah, another day, another story. Okay, my point is that um, there are, on one hand, we have physical adoptions where, where the parents try to model unconditional love. And on the other hand, we have spiritual adoption. Our spiritual adoption begins at the beginning of our salvation when we accept Jesus Christ. But sonship, that comes later. Just as the, uh, the progress of salvation um, 
is consummated at the end times when we receive our resurrected bodies. It's an event in our, in our salvation. So a friend, a friend put it this way. He said, this is, this is the way I see adoption. Our adoption is complete. We're just waiting for our Father to come and pick us up for that we can be with Him. Now we see that this sonship event, we can see it played out in the book of Galatians in chapter 3 and 4. Paul says that Jesus came to make us sons, but the Holy Spirit was sent to make us feel like sons. Galatians 4, 6. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, this is, we've been promised an experience. And um, that, you know, the, the Spirit's going to be sent into our hearts. And, and He's sent to those that are already have the status of adoption, making this something additional. Tim Keller puts it this way. What Paul is talking about here in Galatians 4.6 is something more than the objective fact of our sonship. Because you can be adopted and not experience your sonship, and you can be forgiven and completely accepted and not feel that way. Paul is talking about a feeling. Now, we must be aware not to put our feelings above God's Word, but feelings have a vital place and, uh, in our lives, and this is what Paul is talking about here is a feeling. He says it's a cry. It's a cry, Abba, Father. Uh, a cry is something that we experience, not something that we claim. Uh, I love to go into the, the time that we're in our prayers from when we, we say God, oh God, or Father, till we reach this point where the Holy Spirit has, touches us and we, we change that to to Abba Father, which, which really means Dad. Now, when you find yourself in time of prayer, talking to, to Father God, and you're, you're saying Dad, that is the level where you know you've reached sonship and that intimate relationship and, and that closeness. It's like, Dad, 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 I need you. Dad, thank you so much, etc. Right? The normal Christian life is like this. Most of the time, we're living in the Christian life by claiming the objective truth of our sonship. We're saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to live like this. I'm a son. I'm going to believe that I'm fully accepted in the beloved. And that's what we do. And it's good. We claim it. But when the Spirit is doing the work, we don't have to tell ourselves this. Well, you know it. It's, it's intuitive. It's not something we claim. Um, picture this, you're at a ball game, top of the ninth, bases loaded, tied 4-4, and your team bats a home run. It's like, you're not going to go, hey, see, we won that game. No, it's going to be an emotional response. It's going to be shouting and jumping and joy, and, and, and you're going exp to express yourself emotionally. And that's what it's like when we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, I need you. Abba, Father, I thank you. God help me. I mean, that's the difference. Amen? All right. So, there is some comparison between physical adoption and our spiritual adoption. There's some parallels there. But really, really, there's little comparison. 
It's like comparing playing baseball on a scrub team and the major league. That's the difference. Now, riddle me this. Do you think that your Father God loves Jesus more than you? Do you think that Father God loves Jesus just, just at least a little bit more than you? We find the answer in the book of John, chapter 17, starting at verse 20. Now, this is Jesus praying for his disciples at the end of his ministry, and he's interceding for them. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that you may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's amazing. God loves us equally to the love he has for his son. Hear that? Or should I say, behold, Father God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. He loves you as deeply and as purely as he loves his unadopted son. Here, we don't find Jesus uh, exhorting the church. He's not preaching, he's not teaching, and he's not rallying up the troops. He's praying. In verse 21, Jesus says, As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us. Jesus is praying for those who follow him, and those that would be drawn into the life of the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Son to humanity, precisely so that the Son may draw all humanity into relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, now, if being drawn into the Trinity is a little too esoteric for you early Sunday morning, let me find another verse that, that explains it well too. Earlier in the chapter, Paul is explaining to us, to those who have received him and believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Now when the risen Jesus meets Mary Magdalene outside the tomb, he commissions her and he says, go tell my brothers that I am going to ascend to the Father, my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Uh, in the resurrection, the relationship that the Son had with the Father, which had already always been shared, is now being expanded and open to us followers. The Gospel of John often uses the term the world to um, describe or name um, those who oppose Jesus. But yet in John 3.16, we see that it was for the love of the world that he sent his Son Jesus. And in this prayer, at the close of his ministry, Jesus is interceding not only for his own, but for that world. In verse 21, Jesus asks for unity and love between those that have given him and the Father. So why does he want unity and love between us and him? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I always thought that was like, maybe I studied apologetics too much, but I always thought it was like, well, there you go. There's your evidence. 
Jesus is the Son of God. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Whereas it's nothing less than Jesus' desire for the reconciliation of everything and everyone. The goal in his prayer is that even those, those who have been hostile to the gospel and to the coming of his son, a.k.a. the world, his prayer is that they may believe that the Father sent him. And such believing, we know, will bring life in his name. So sum this all up. Yeah. I believe our understanding of Christianity cannot be um, better than our grasp of uh, adoption. I believe if you want to understand someone's level of Christianity, ask them, how do you feel about being a son of God? And how do you feel about Father God being your father, Abba Father? Um, so J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, this is how he sort of sums this up. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls one's worship and prayers and the whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So we see that sonship should control all our view, our whole concept of what it means to be sons and daughters of God. And I would like to leave you with an exhortation of Paul's. And he says, Imitate God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, live a life of love. Let us pray. Father God, uh, I thank you that um, even before I was born, you had plans and purpose for me, and that you saw me as being adopted into your family. And I thank you, Jesus, for, for, for making that possible by... Uh, by what you did on my behalf, taking my sins on your shoulders and being punished for my sins. And I thank that the Holy Spirit has been sent into my life to, to assure me and to um, promise me and let my spirit, not just my mind, but my spirit know that I am a child of God and that I have sonship within my grasp. So we thank you, Father again for this uh, for this word and I just pray uh, that uh, it touches people's hearts and I come against the enemy that would uh, like to snatch that word and I cover that with the blood of Christ yeah. can I get an amen thank you very much be sure to tune in next week God bless